As we are all keenly aware in the wake of St. Patrick's Day, alcohol plays a major role in American culture. It was also pretty important in the Middle Ages. Today, we'll be exploring the culture surrounding booze in medieval England. Hello, this is Samantha, and welcome to the March 23rd episode of Footnoting History, because the best story is always in the footnotes. We tend to think of drunkenness in physiological terms, and to focus on the impact of drink on the body. However, drunkenness is also a socially mediated state. The ways that we think about drinking and the way we behave when we've been drinking too much are dictated by social pressures and preconceptions. Therefore, by studying drinking behavior, it is hypothetically possible to better understand culture as a whole. Today, I'll be using the mug of beer as a prism through which to look at medieval England. When we talk about drinking in the Middle Ages, it's important to realize that drinking was a far more pervasive and crucial part of culture than it is today. It also had more varied functions and results. That said, I'd like to make the point up front that although moralists suggested moderation in drink, just as they did for eating, consumption of alcohol was less stigmatized in medieval Europe than it is in the United States today. For the remainder of my time, I'd like to answer two questions. First, what did people drink in England? And second, what was the function of drinking in medieval culture? The first question is actually fairly straightforward. There were effectively three types of booze available, wine, ale, and beer. We'll take each in turn. Wine is not easily produced in England because of its lovely climate. Therefore, it was primarily consumed by the wealthy who could afford to pay for the stock imported from the continent, particularly from Gascony. That's not to say that wine was only available to the uber-wealthy. It was sold in many urban establishments, and its sale was closely regulated. In one notorious London case, a man accused of selling bad wine was imprisoned for a year and a day. When he was released, he was forced to drink the bad wine and had the dregs of the barrel dumped over his head. That was not the end of his punishment. For the rest of his days, he was no longer allowed to call himself a vinter and had to find a new profession. Ale was the drink of the common man, or perhaps, I should say, of the common woman. As Judith Bennett has shown, before the mid-14th century, most of the ale that was consumed by the general public was brewed by local women. It was often sold out of the home or in the streets. Because of this irregular sale, the quality of ale could vary considerably, as could its strength, which was determined by the proportion of water to barley used. I'm sure that there was some temptation to water down the ale in order to produce more and create a greater profit margin. In order to combat this threat and to ensure that good quality drinks were being sold, Many towns and manors employed people known as ale conners to test each brew and to ensure that consumers were getting what they paid for. It appears that ale was widely available throughout England, except in years of famine when production slowed down dramatically, and that it would have been an ordinary part of the peasant diet. The final drink that concerns us today is beer. In many ways, beer is superior to ale, and I say that without bias because, honestly, I'm much more of a cider girl myself. Like ale, beer can be cheaply produced from local foodstuffs, but because it was made from hops, it lasted much longer than ale before the quality deteriorated. 
Beer is not, however, indigenous to England. It was originally drunk in northern Germany and Holland, and when it was first brought to the island by Dutch traders, it was treated with some suspicion. Some cities even banned the new drink. After the plague, however, the benefits of beer were more widely recognized, and by the end of the 14th century, London was the world's biggest producer of beer, and per capita consumption of beer in England rose to as much as a gallon per day. The shift from bread and ale to beer as a staple in the English diet came hand in hand with other social changes. Because it lasts much longer and is somewhat more complicated to make, beer is more conveniently mass-produced than ale. As the drink became more popular, its production increasingly passed into the hands of men, and women lost one of their primary sources of revenue. A few other drinks were available in England. Hard cider was popular in the southeast, and mead was drunk in some regions, but was significantly less popular in the period following the plague. Here, I should make a point of noting that hard liquor was not widely available in Western Europe until the 18th century, and although the quantity of the booze the people drank was astronomical by modern standards, most drinks were probably weaker than their modern equivalents. Moreover, they were sometimes served watered down. Moving on to the next question, what were the functions of drinking in medieval England? Drinking was a facet of every part of life from the moment of birth. Childbirth, it seems, was usually attended by drink. Neighboring women who came to assist with the labor would bring booze to keep themselves going. They would also brew a special drink known as mother's coddle, which was warmed ale with wine and sugar and spices added to sustain the mother's strength during childbirth. This treatment was seen as so crucial that certain charitable efforts were made to ensure that women would have access to booze while they were in labor. Once a child was born, mothers who could afford their own drink were instructed to continue drinking to aid in their recovery. They were also expected to provide drink for those who attended the child's christening. As one might expect, most celebrations involved the distribution of booze. Saints' days and civic pageants were great excuses to get drunk, as were graduations and the successful completion of apprenticeships. Even death was an opportunity to drink. When a wealthy person died, he or she would often indicate that drinks were to be distributed to the poor on the occasion. In return, those who were given alcohol were expected to pray for the soul of the departed. Some wills also made provision that loved ones, especially widows, were to be provided with a certain amount of wine or ale each year for the rest of their lives. Drinking was also a standard part of marriage celebrations. Most families celebrated with a tradition known as the bride's ale, wherein the bride or her mother would brew a batch of ale to celebrate the wedding. Friends and neighbors would then come and pay an exorbitant amount for the said drink. The profits from that sale would effectively become the wedding gift for the couple. So there's no open bar, but you don't have to get a gift. Kind of works out, I guess. This custom was so common in England that the bride's ale actually evolved into a single word, bridal, as in the bridal party. Moreover, in a time when marriages could take place anywhere, many couples seem to have exchanged vows or negotiated marriage contracts in the local tavern. This possibility, however, could also cause problems, as one woman named Cecily discovered to her chagrin when she was brought before the ecclesiastical courts for having contracted marriage with a certain man who had proposed her over drinks one night. She argued that her choice to accompany the man to the tavern in no way constituted an agreement to marry him. Yet the suitor's claim was taken seriously enough 
that she was to, had to actively appeal to the courts to deny the allegations of a marriage. While awkward word misunderstandings could occur, it seems that taverns remained a popular venue for courtship. While drinking was often a festive activity, it also had practical applications. Ale was an essential part of the English diet, and it in certain periods could have constituted as much as half of the caloric intake of the working peasant. Part of the pay for working in fields often came in the form of drinks, which were seen to keep people motivated and well-nourished. When necessary, the poor did resort to drinking water, which was often polluted, but they could also get ale and beer through charitable bequests. Alcohol was also intimately involved with business negotiations. Although technically all trading was supposed to happen in the marketplace where it could be regulated and taxed, there's significant evidence that tavern keepers both stored goods and hosted business negotiations as well as celebratory drinks in the aftermath of a bargain. Sales of ale could also be used to raise money for churches, while in some instances civic officials complained that church ales led to disorder. As a general rule, they seemed to have cemented the bond that held the parish community together. Those who prayed together drank together, at least when the church needed some money. Drinking could also play a part in diplomacy, and here I'm going to deviate from England for just a moment, because there's a particularly nice example in Scotland where clan leaders would make peace by sharing a drink from a cup that was so large it could only be picked up with both hands. By drinking, the leader left himself undefended and demonstrated his trust in his drinking companion. Now returning to England. This previous discussion of alcohol probably makes it seem like a widely benign and even necessary force in the Middle Ages, but it could cause problems too. Drinking could and did increase aggression, leading to brawls and even murder. In 1420, for example, Arnold and John sat together in a tavern known as the Moses. Soon they began to argue, and some hurtful words were apparently said about John's concubine, whereupon he drew his dagger and attacked his drinking companion, pinning him to the ground. Arnaud then drew his own knife and slew the said John. This occasion, however, seems to have been fairly uncommon. In nearly half of assaults and murders today, the assailants have been drinking. Barbara Hanawalt's study of London murders, however, shows that drinking was only explicitly mentioned in about 6% of cases. This number is likely an underestimate. The records did not always record whether or not an assailant had been drinking because inebriation had no impact on the outcome of a case, either as an excuse or as an intensifying factor. But in any case, it appears that although violence may have increased upon drinking, it was not an inevitable outcome of booze. Drink was also associated with prostitution, as many drinking establishments doubled as brothels. Though as a general rule, alcoholic beverages were weaker, and, given the amount they were drinking, most people's tolerance was likely higher than it is today, people did get drunk and suffer from some of the same misfortunes that they do today. My favorite story, once recorded in a footnote, involves a certain lad named William, who one August night in 1336 stood drunk, naked, and alone at the top of some stairs in a London tenement for the purpose of relieving nature, when, misjudging his dexterity and his inebriated state, he fell to the ground and perished. Plenty of others lost their lives either by falling into rivers or tripping on stairs while making their way home after an evening at a pub. In order to avoid such dangers, many towns imposed a curfew on drinking establishments. But even if such measures helped ensure that people made it home, that was no guarantee of their safety. 
One man in Oxford, for example, passed out while still clutching a knife and stabbed himself to death in his sleep. Another man in London burned to death because he had fallen into a drunken stupor before extinguishing his candle. In spite of these dangers, and some concerns about increased violence among people who had been drinking, contemporaries recognized consumption of alcohol as an important part of culture, and the temperance movement is actually a relatively recent phenomenon. In fact, the world's first known temperance society was founded in 1600, and that one was on the continent, not in England. The members of this society swore to limit their consumption of wine to only seven glasses per meal. Since they ate two meals a day, they were promising not to have more than a meager 14 glasses of wine each day, and this counted as temperance. The fairly relaxed attitude towards alcohol lasted into the 18th century, when the introduction of distilled liquor presented increased health problems and when coffee and tea became more prevalent as safe alternatives to alcohol. Even then, drink remained an essential part of English society. In the 1720s, Benjamin Franklin wrote about his experience in a London print shop, saying, and here I quote, We had an alehouse boy who attended always in the house to supply the workmen. My companion at press drank every day a pint before breakfast, a pint at breakfast with his bread and cheese, a pint between breakfast and dinner, and a pint at dinner, a pint in the afternoon about six o'clock, and another when he had done his day's work, end quote. Even if Franklin frowned on this amount of drinking, the prevalent culture still clearly assumed that people would be imbibing drink during business hours. I imagine most of you listening would never dream of drinking five pints during the work day, but if you did, you knew, would know that you were being naughty. And so you can see that our attitude toward drink is, in fact, determined by societal expectations, and that our ideas about drinking are much more conservative than those of our ancestors. This has been Footnoting History. If you liked our podcast, be sure to check us out on the web at footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as information about upcoming podcasts. Join us next week when we'll be talking about the role of running in the history of human evolution. Until then, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week.